0: Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Hello, everybody. Today's guest in our interview series is Tim Jackson. He is an ecological economist, writer, and the director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, or CUSP. CUSP is a multidisciplinary research center which aims to understand the economic, social, and political dimensions of sustainable prosperity. Its guiding vision for prosperity is one in which people everywhere have the capability to flourish as human beings within the ecological and resource constraints of a finite planet. And right there, you can see why we're so excited at I'm Asia to speak with Tim. He's been at the forefront of international debates on sustainability for three decades, has worked with the UK government, the United Nations, the European Commission, numerous NGOs, private companies and foundations, to bring economic and social science research into sustainability. From 2004 to 2011, he was Economics Commissioner for the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where his work culminated in the publication of his, may I say, controversial and groundbreaking book, Prosperity Without Growth. Most recently, he's the author of Post Growth, published in the United States in May 2021. And I would encourage everyone to go out and get those books because they're amazing. He holds master's degrees in mathematics and philosophy from Cambridge and the University of Western Ontario, respectively, and a doctorate in physics from the University of St. Andrews. So I want to start right there with with our first question in our five-question format. Tim, a question about your background, your degrees and initial professional experience suggested something completely different from the path you're on now. How did you end up here?
1: <laughs> yes, I suppose that's true. First of all, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. I mean, to be honest, I ran away from both physics and academia. This was in the, I guess, early, mid 1980s, not exactly in disgust, but was a little bit of frustration with the way in which academic science was, was being prosecuted at that point in time. And the bits of the science that I found the most interesting were not attracting funding. They were not attracting that much interest within the department. And and I, I had, for a variety of reasons, I, I had this other this other side to me, which was a kind of slightly artistic streak, I suppose. And I'd spent quite a lot of my, my free time doing those quite dry sciences and and philosophies working in the theater and and so i i kind of ran away from academia with the idea that I was going to be a playwright and at that point i'd already sold a play to the bbc which was kind of interesting so i thought well hey here we go and then may we, i remember the may, day when i may we ask what kinds of plays that all kinds of things really i mean human story is what interests me and i think in some ways you know i i've come to back to that in post growth because it's a book that's built around human stories and the drama that plays itself out through human lives and through which in the society, in a sense, society kind of moves forwards through those sort of critical points in in thinking about our the nature of the human condition and the nature of the challenges that face us. And, and although in the scientific sense, you know, they're absolutely fascinating, they don't always come home to people unless you can sort of bring them home through the idea of of human stories so I, I did write some environmental plays I wrote some plays about sort of concept like like the concept of altruism for example but all the time they, these stories and these plays were, were driven by this idea that you know drama is something that everybody to some extent can understand and, and can and has a a power. In our lives, that, that sense of sort of fascination with other lives, with conflict between different kinds of individuals, different kinds of ideas, and with inspiration, with creative inspiration that leads to change, mm. I think. So those are the kinds of plays that I started writing. Actually, my first play was a kind of protest play. It was a protest at the war that the UK government was prosecuting at that point across thousands of miles with Argentina over a bunch of islands called the Falklands Islands. And, you know, young men of my age were dying for the territory of the flag. And the sort of futility of that sort of drove me into a kind of writing career. And then in the mid-1980s, actually, as I was, I was, I was, had worked on a couple of plays at the BBC at that point, and I was sustaining myself with odd jobs in cafes and bars and repair industries and that kind of thing. And in April nineteen eighty six Chernobyl melted down and right. it was for me it was like a kind of wake up call, I think. It was like uh actually I was you know, I was, I knew people who were working in the nuclear industry because that was a one of the outlets from the people who were my cohort in the physics department where I was you know, if I had been interested in that kind of career I might have been working there myself. And Chernobyl to me taught me about the power and the danger of human technology, particularly when it's not integrated fully into management and governance systems. And I began to look actually interestingly at at technology as in a different way. And I began to, I, the next day pretty much I walked into the offices of Greenpeace in, in London and said, look, uh, if you could do anything with me, I'm a physicist. I've got all this background that might be useful. I don't believe like you. I don't believe in nuclear power, and I'd like you to find me something to do. And I don't know if I thought they would, you know, put me on the boats, which was the most exciting bit of what Greenpeace was doing at that point in time. the kind of protest boats running around the ocean, putting themselves in harm's way. May I ask a personal question? I mean, this was this was sure this was the Thatcher era, and if you weren't
0: in that camp, I I guess the question is, was there a lot of anger?
1: A friend who worked in Greenpeace, who used to say that campaigners run on anger. Right. So there was a sense in which you know that that anger sort of informed our work. I think in those right. days, and it was a pretty, it was easy to maintain in a way because we knew who the bad guys were. They were in <laughs> government, and right. and so we knew that who we had to fight, what kinds of arguments we had to put together, and and as I say, this kind of campaigners run on campaigners run on anger. Yeah. It's very much a part of what you'd see. And actually, I still see in my activists' friends. And I think where that works and where it is, <laughs> you know, a constructive rather than a destructive anger is when it is able to transform itself into action, into agency, into getting out, doing something, saying something. And, you know, that in itself is a task that requires a little bit of, I don't know, self-discipline, a little bit of self-knowledge, a little bit of learning, because anger can also, of course, be, be potentially quite destructive but I think at that point that that little bit of anger and the way in which I began to engage with Greenpeace who did very kindly in a way they didn't put me out on the boats but they put me to work on the economics of the alternatives to nuclear power so in particular the renewable energy technologies with solar and wind and so on which of course everybody now talks about and is investing in and thinking right. about as technological saviors, but at the time no one was paying attention to. And I became almost overnight a kind of accidental economist, I suppose. That was the beginning of that story. That's amazing. And then what did that lead to next? Because as of this
0: point, <laughs> you're still at Greenpeace.
1: Yeah, I was working as a consultant at, at sort of arm's length from Greenpeace through from a guy who then you know, was a, a mentor to me in, in many different ways, I think, partly through that personal journey of, you know, navigating those emotions of, of sort of anger and frustration and, and a sense of loss in some ways, but also very particularly in the campaigning work and in the work that we were doing. And and so, I you know, I owe a lot to those kind of early mentors, I think, for people who sort of guided me through that process. But it was almost as though, I mean, I didn't give up playwriting. I kept that playwriting career going for Another couple of decades, aside, but it was almost as though the moment I'd made that decision that I was you know going to walk through this office in Greenpeace and see how can I be useful to you in this challenge we're facing that the world kind of bit my hand off in a way one you know it kind of I then found myself in an academic context, which was the last thing I expected <laughs> so I say I was I sort of ran away from academia brushing the dust from my shoes as I went if I could sort of metaphorically put it like that, swearing never to go back. And actually, within a couple of years or so, I had an academic post. And, and a few years after that, I was given a permanent position in in University of Surrey, where, where, I've, where I've been since. And that work drew me first through the technologies themselves and the economics of the technologies themselves, and then to a realization that there was a kind of continual battle between Efficiency and scale, that the, the, the technologies helped us to become more efficient in the way that we live, but the continual expansion of the economy, that question of scale was always in, you know, was in a tension between that efficiency gain and the impact that it has on the planet. And what you need in order to reduce your impacts on the planet is for efficiency always to be winning that battle between efficiency and scale. And actually, what you saw in the data was that scale was always winning it we were always right. growing faster than we could improve the technology. And that played out in the statistics at the global level. Carbon emissions just went on getting bigger and bigger, even as our carbon efficiency improved year upon year upon year, it didn't grow right. fast enough. And that, I think, is what led me to these questions, these macroeconomic questions about the, the growth-based economy, the values of consumerism that drive it, and the nature of a genuine lasting prosperity that could be conceived of as a shared prosperity in place of what I began to see around me, began to articulate around me, a sense around me of a world divided between those who have and still want more and those who don't even have enough to live on. You know, that sort of dynamic around uh, the injustice of that world. Again, an injustice that brings anger as one of the responses to it drove me to look more in depth, I suppose, at the structure and dynamics of this growth-based economic system that 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 was inherited.
0: And that is a great segue, and thank you for that, because I think this background is important in setting the context for what is going to follow, because we're going to dig into some of your ideas, which I have to tell you resonate in a fairly significant way with me. So we can start with with sort of the basics. Some of the viewers of this series may not be familiar. In fact, I would probably say most of them will not be familiar with the ideas of post-growth. And so would you mind just giving us you can call it an overview, or, you know, what happens to capitalism? You know, I am a so-called hmm. card-carrying capitalist, although as you can tell from my preamble, I'm having all kinds of issues with that. What happens to capitalism in a post-growth world?
1: Yeah, this in a way was a was a sort of progression for me. When I uh, wrote "Prosperity Without Grace," the the work that came out of the work I was doing with the UK government, <laughs> almost as soon as we raised, even notified our sponsors, because the it was an, an agency that reported directly to the Prime Minister in, at the time, and and as soon as we alerted our sponsors and our sponsor departments for the idea that we were even questioning growth we we had sort of a furious sense of yeah now we know what sustainability means it just means going back to living in caves right. does not it and i literally had a, a civil servant in a meeting that i was presenting the idea stand up and shout that at me from the back <laughs> of the room and so this challenge this challenge to the growth based system was was an extraordinary one already. And so to come out on the back of that and say, well, actually, you can't have capitalism either. We're going to question that, too. At the time, was was something that I didn't do. I finessed that argument by sort of saying, well, you know, it's capitalism, Jim, but not as we know it. Once you've made these changes to this growth-based economy, and maybe, maybe you can keep some capitalism in a post-growth world, that you, you know, it isn't a capitalism with relentless accumulation attached to it. It's a capitalism with purpose. It's a capitalism with a social conscience. It's a different kind of capitalism. I was attacked actually at that point from both sides, both from the people who thought I was a, a rampant anti-capitalist just trying to hide it, and also from a bunch of people who sort of said, well, you should have just come out and said it. capitalism itself sucks and right. the the structure of it can never do without growth. It's part of the growth imperative. Right. And these arguments around the terminology and what we called ourselves and whether we did or didn't align with capitalism or not became in some senses, they spurred me on. In some senses, they were quite frustrating because the arguments about any questioning of capitalism, particularly at that time, you know, fif- 10, 15 years ago, was always deemed, particularly in the U.S., as being about aligning your interests with what has become a sort of nationalistic en- enemy mm-hmm. of communism. Mm-hmm. And so you inevitably, you're kind of falling into this capitalism. Mm-hmm. Is it capitalism? Well, if it's not, then it must be communism, and therefore you're, you're on the correct. other side. You're, you're absolutely correct. It is framed like that. It's a sort of a extraordinary an extraordinarily unhelpful division I would say. And yet there was this, so there is this sense in which within capitalism, there's a kind of gross imperative. There's a, cap, a few gross imperatives, really. One is that the idea of kind of profit maximization in firms leads to a situation in which you end up underpaying your workers, disinvesting in the future, and and looking continually to keep your shareholders happy <laughs> at the expense of people and planet. That is something that, that drives itself through the profit maximization principle, which is central to, to the way that capitalism works. And then there are the ways in which the financial system leverages itself on the back of future growth and in particular the ways in which it, it makes debt, particularly public debt, very difficult to manage in the situation where you don't have growth. Mm-hmm. And so I began to realize that I couldn't run away from these problems, and, but I didn't want to address them. Post-growth is, is the most recent book, the one that was published in May. Is, is not a book for policymakers, really, although I hope some policymakers read it. It wasn't written in the way that Prosperity Without Growth was. That was written really directly, you know, a report to the prime minister, talking to policymakers, giving them a list of the things that could be done about the situation very clear things that could be done in terms of environmental policy, economic policy, what has to happen inside investment, what has to happen in our social world and the, and the the dynamics of consumerism and saying, well, we're not at the mercy of these forces. They are a human construct. We created this system under a certain set of ideological beliefs and we can change it. And these are the things that you could do in various areas. And, It became clear to me, though, that there was a sense that the government found that difficult to listen to, the policymakers found that difficult to listen to. In fact, that came home to me very, very strongly. I received quite a lot of robust pushback from the sponsors of, of the commission, and the commission itself was closed down shortly after that report was published. Who needs that kind of advice? Thank you very much. But it became sort of clear to me that at the same time that there was an enormous audience of people who were incredibly interested in this debate, and they were unusual suspects. They weren't the environmental campaigners running on the anger that I had witnessed in the 1980s. They were actually from everything from community groups in villages to theatres, fascinatingly from my point of view, to investment houses, to intergovernmental organisations. And the most fascinating of those in a way was the was the audience investment houses because, I mean, partly they're populated by very clever people and partly those very clever people are able to understand an argument as basic as the one that I was making, the sort of continually expanding economy, driving itself through profit maximization, neglecting the interests of people and planet is heading society towards disaster. And of course, you know, in those terms, that's a fairly, there were people inside the system who could see, and I remember I remember the, one of the first conversations I had in an investment company where a guy, one of these very bright guys, and, said, and 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 they had invited me in to talk about this, you know, what was essentially almost seemed like a challenge to their entire rationale and to their entire industry. And the guy who'd invited me in sort of then sort of said to the group, you know, what? well, what do we make of Tim's analysis? And uh, I watched them just sort of turn around and said, well, basically we're all fucked. But what can we do? You know, this is our business. This is what we're doing. This is what we know how to do. We have to keep on doing it. But to their credit, they didn't just keep on doing it. They began to transform. They began to think through what investment actually means and what its rationale is within economics and what its social purpose is, what its social license is in society, which is to provide that commitment in the present towards a workable, livable future for other people and and indeed for other species. And when you transform the concept of investment in that way, it becomes something that that is profoundly important to get right and profoundly important to communicate. That work of, I think, on the back of Prosperity Without Growth and finding that it had this audience in a very different place, that led me to go back to this deeper critique of, of capitalism and where the bare pits are within capitalism that yep. have been leading us astray. And post and Postgres is, is a sort of a prequel almost to Prosperity Without Grace in the sense that it's appealing to that wider audience that I never had expected was there. But it's also engaging in a much more philosophical conversation about not just the economy, but the nature of society that we want to live in, interestingly, one of the translations, the German translation of the book, which is just uh, being published in a couple of weeks, they changed the title. And and in retrospect, I really like the title, and and the title that they chose is just "How Should We Live?" Right ways yeah. out of the the growth trap.
0: I mean, in the end, it is the great question of philosophy, right? How should we live? And what that meant for Plato and what that means for our cap- very capitalism-ridden society are different things. But I think the questions, many of the questions remain the same, which brings us to the next question, which is that every age in every era thinks this is the crucial moment in human history. And questions of human flourishing and prosperity have existed since the dawn of time. What makes this moment the crux in terms of problems and opportunities. Can we, in fact, hold a mirror up to ourselves and our planet and make the case that this is a moment like no other? So I guess that's the question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at those graphs, that sort of those hockey stick graphs that are associated with the change of CO2 in the atmosphere, the, the incidence of of environmental impact, the destruction of habitats, the loss of other species, where we look over, over kind of millennia of what appeared to be stability and then see the influence of the development model of the last century, century and a half. You know, that does tend towards a, it tends to make us think that this is a moment like, like no other and that the forward direction of those trends is a very uncomfortable place to be. We're pushing ourselves out of the comfort zone that humanity evolved within. We're pushing the planet out of that comfort zone as well. And so we're kind of – I accept the point. You know, There is a sense of apocalism, if that's a word. I'm not sure it is, that is associated with that view. And I'm not sure either that it's a very helpful sense. No because it tends to kind of blind us to possibilities for action and to deepness of thought. And we become, you know, we become anxious with rabbits in the headlights and and our sympathetic nervous systems click in and, and it's fight or flight. Or it's you know it's getting worse because it's getting worse. Work, work. It's even worse today than it was yesterday, and and there's nothing we can do about it. Or you've all got to change. You've all got to, and these strategies can potentially be paralyzing. Mm-hmm. I think, and and so in some sense, I think bringing back that realization, bringing us back from the brink of apocalypse is a kind of good thing to do, and to relativize our concern about the future as something that every society to some extent has witnessed, experienced, and may even be a part of the survival strategy of societies, to have such a sense, that's a much richer place in a way to begin a dialogue about how we should change than one that says, you know, we've got whatever it is, 100 months left or 18 months left or 10 years left or we have to have done this by 2030, which is rapidly approaching or we've got to solve this in COP twenty six in Glasgow in a month or so's time because that's our last chance. Right. You know, this kind of last chance saloon dialogue is a difficult one. It's a very difficult one for even for people working towards those goals. But it's an even more difficult one, I think, for ordinary people for whom these issues are outside what they normally comfortably like to think about.
0: I wanna in my next question sort of explore the idea of optimism. And, you know, this has been on my mind lately, as I'm sure it has been on many people's minds, because the new IPCC report came out, as you know. And it's not a report that inspires optimism. Let's put it that way. And it's not written in a way that leaves room for a whole lot of feels like the most pessimistic thus far of all the reports. And on the one hand, you want the facts and you want the truth. But on the other hand... You know, the solution can't be, let's all just lay down and die. And in our work, in my day job, but even in my non-day job stuff, I find lots of reasons for optimism in the sense of us fighting to make things better and different. So the question for you is, why are you optimistic about the idea that degrowth ideas might actually be implemented over the next 5, 15, 20 years? What gives you your optimism?
1: Well, I think my optimism comes from the idea that actually a post-growth society could be a better place. And, you know, that was very much a theme within within the book, Post-Growth, is the richness of this world beyond our obsession with growth. And so that gives me, you know, that gives me something to strive for, in a sense. But I'm not immune to pessimism. I'm not immune to you know, a sense of despair. And neither of the students that I work with, for example, in the university, or many of many of those angry activists who are now suffering from crises of despair. And I, I kind of, what I tell my students at least, and I think I believe this, is that the opposite of the despair actually isn't optimism, but action. And it's a very different place to be because it gives you a sense of efficacy if you can find a route to be doing something which is aligned with the future, and it's a way of kind of returning yourself, I think, to the ability to be a changemaker, to do something in the world, and to have a sense that we do, at the end of the day, live inside a system which is entirely a construct of ideologies, of ideas of the past that have been reified in our institutions and our political systems, and are not scientifically knocking us into disaster, and that is a, an extraordinarily empowering sense to have, even though ideology, and, and this came to me very much from the philosophy that I was studying back in uh, Canada in the very, very early days, in which taught us that scientific knowledge itself, that fact itself, you know, is not this hard-nosed thing that cannot be changed, but is socially contextual. It depends on our understanding of science at that time. It depends on the way in which society is organized at that time. It's very gendered at various points in time. It's become, you know, kind of masculine, hard-nosed, technological, ideological optimism that says that the only way for progress is through the mechanism of the market and this is the way that governments, or even governments, have to operate as well. Is pure ideology. It's thin air. It's smoke and mirrors, and... And yet it has an enormous power on our lives. You know, I think to me that that realization, which comes very strongly through the philosophy of science, has informed the way that I think about change. Because I am never put off, if you like. I'm never kind of, I'm never deterred by the idea of what appear to be institutional hard structures. And even sometimes, you know, although I think there are limits to this, I think there are ways in which we should also always, as scientists, be sceptical of scientific fact. That's quite a difficult thing to say in a context in which scientific fact itself is being manipulated by interests that don't have the best prospects of society or or of humanity or of the planet at their heart. But it's also a place where what we should be doing as human beings and within society is taking the best knowledge that science can give us and separating that best knowledge from these ideological belief systems that somehow sometimes are even more powerful than scientific fact because they appear to be immutable. And that, I think, is what capitalism has presented itself as in the ideology of Of particularly of the West over the last few decades, and it's spurious. I
0: can obviously second and third that big time because these are the worlds I have lived in my entire working career. Right, so I'm surrounded by luminaries for whom these are laws. You know, this is how the world should work. And look at this failed experiment over there, and this failed experiment over here, and therefore this is good, and all of that was and is bad. And I think these black and white binaries are getting in the way of getting to a better place. And that brings me to my last question. We're in the venture capital business. If you strip away that verbiage, look, we're an investment company. We invest in things. We, have, well, we invest in companies. You know, that is a very capitalist endeavor, to say the least, right? I guess one thing that's been on my mind as as we're talking and as I've read your work as well is, you know, how do we translate in our own lives and work the messages that you are conveying, which as you can tell from this conversation, I'm largely, if not completely in agreement with, how do we translate that into action? You know, what is it that people like me should be doing? And there be, you may not have an answer, but if you do have a thought or two,
1: that would be interesting. I think it does go back to me to thinking through within this transformation that we need, do we still need investment? Yes, of course we do. Right. And what is the nature of that investment? And as I I was suggesting earlier, it seems to me that the fundamental, that there are a couple of things that drive investment. One is a sense of prudence, a concern for the future bearing in mind the lessons of the past and the immediacy of the present as the allegory of prudence that i talk about in the book is beautiful sort of illustration of that that moment in time in which the present makes sense because we're concerned about the future right through our knowledge and our lessons about the past and the other is this idea of commitment that under even more basic than that sort of sense of of prudence over time is this sense of a commitment to the future. And to me that's what investment is. It is about putting aside resources in the present in order to protect well being into the future. And that's a task really that mm-hmm. that I I think makes sense across the whole gamut of investment from, you know, small scale, community based, crowdfunding type investments through the magnitude of institutional investments that are also providing a Financing vehicle for people's income, their pensions later in life, or, the, or or smoothing out the purchases that they're making that they can't afford in their younger life, and towards that sort of end of technology investment that you guys are engaged in, and venture capital, which if you like is the edge of that. And I don't yeah. know that I've articulated particularly where venture capital should be moving within this idea of investment as commitment but it is a venture it is a risk there are and I for almost 20 years actually I chaired a venture capital advisory board in Denmark which was investing in in cutting edge capital and it was you know it was a labor of love that process because it was before its time it turned round a multiple i think of somewhere just below one over the 20 (laughs) years that we were working on it. And yet it sort of did provide a vehicle for financing the innovation that we know that we need in order to achieve the transition that will address the challenges that we're facing. And so I think, I feel very strongly that there are definitely those elements within what we see as capitalism, which are incredibly important, but they also, they they need to be challenged and they need to be transformed to become those vehicles of transition, to become those vehicles of change. And in some places, you know, that can lead to some sort of uncomfortable question, questioning about the conventionally construed performance yep. of some of those vehicles. And, and of course, for, you know, venture capital counts its multiples, its returns in multiples. and Yes, and one is just not a very good multiple <laughs> no. by conventional standards, but it did a job over those. Did a job over that period. That multiple actually did invest. Did a, it? did a job. Yeah. And I think yeah, if I were to close and-, and I you know I think that's that's my, I guess I would say that, in a sense, to the extent that that at every stage in in all, all of those investment architectures the extent to which you can return to that idea of investment as a commitment to the future rather than a kind of zero-sum game where the winner takes all, that's a shift in in the direction that we need to see.
0: And if I, if I were to close us on those notes, I mean, I think the issues we're grappling with at HamAsia, my firm, are on both sides. And on the one side, it's how are we measuring returns you know that there is the conventional industry way which is economic multiples and we operate that way that is the basis for how we operate but then on the other end of the paradigm and this is something you did not touch on is you know we're we're growing and we're being successful and all those things are happening and on the other end that implies a concentration of economic reward in a few hands including our own, right? And so that's really been annoying at me that, you know, we can't run around claiming we're doing great things for the planet when on the one end of the extreme, we're potentially going to end up making the wealth concentration issue worse. And as you can quickly imagine, the solutions to that are unconventional and require a real act of will to say... This is how we are going to live and operate. Work in process. We'll see. You have been incredibly kind with your time, and I feel like every interview is amazingly thought-provoking. This is right up there, and it has touched on topics that we have not covered with other people. You're a busy person, and you've been very kind and gracious, and I want to thank you for,
1: for the time you've spent with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.